Money Sense is brought to you by Ellen Becker Investment Group, four-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau Torch Award for business ethics and integrity. Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com and listen to Money Sense Saturdays at 2 and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee at our new office at 94 and 164 in Ridgeview Corporate Park. We are also located in the village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building across from Winkies. We also service clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. Visit ellenbecker.com for more details. My special guest today is Dr. Glenn Miller. We're honored to have Dr. Miller join us. Professor Miller is with University of Denver with the F.L. Burns School of Real Estate and Construction Management. He is internationally known for his work in market cycles in the public and private markets, also academic director for the Family Office of Real Estate, also known as FOR. Dr. Miller will provide much depth to our conversation today with a degree in finance from the University of Denver, an MBA from Babson, and a PhD in real estate from Georgia State. Glenn, welcome to Money Sense. Thank you very much, appreciate it. Thank you, Glenn. Yeah, as we know, the world of real estate has so many moving parts, both domestically here in the US, but also on a global stage. Today, we'll have the opportunity to hear from one of the top experts. I'm sure it will be a fascinating conversation our listeners will gain some insight on a variety of different levels for sure. Before we jump in, uh, Glenn, I have a question for you. How did you find your way into this profession? And was it something that you, you know, were just interested in or involved in? What piqued your interest? Sure. Um, well, my uh, undergraduate degree is finance and then an MBA. And my first job was at a uh, bank as a loan analyst. And each week I'd work in a different industry group and I don't know, a month or a month and a half in, I got put into the real estate group. They liked me for whatever reason. So I started doing uh, underwriting deals and uh, realized that uh, builders and developers made a lot of money. And uh, I thought I, I was smart enough to do the same. Uh, so I actually went out and started my own construction and development companies and did that for about eight years and then went back to school, got my PhD in real estate and started teaching and also working in the industry. So I've actually had two jobs for the last uh, 30 plus years, um, both uh, doing industry investment analysis, as well as teaching real estate development and real estate investments and capital markets and things at, uh, at universities. Right, and I understand that you've been with the University of Denver for the last uh, 15 or so plus years. Right, 21 actually. 21 years, and then uh, also posting classes. Uh, you recently finished up with some coursework that you were going through at Harvard University as well. Correct. Yep. And been actually teaching there for 23 years. That's fantastic. Well, we're very honored to have you. You're probably a wealth of knowledge, and, and there are so many things that we can discuss. So why don't we start with maybe trying to get an understanding of where we've been over the past few years. Uh, you know, none of us expected what was gonna happen in 2020. 
Um, you know, have you observed any significant shifts in the market cycle since the beginning of, of this decade? And is there anything that, that you would say that, that is radically different today than before COVID? Well, um, <clears throat> that's a great question. And I think, uh, uh, you know, just, just when we talk about fundamentals, real estate really is sort of a delayed mirror of the economy. As the economy goes, so does real estate, but typically close to about a year lag. When we, um, you know, when we think about the fact that COVID was a very, very short recession with a obviously huge rebound, it, uh, you know, and, and it affected real estate that way, except for one of the property types. And uh, if I can, let me start by saying there's really two parts to real estate. One is home ownership, and that is a use asset where you live. The, the market there is actually very good. Uh, the demand is strong. We're actually 6.5 million housing units short in the United States today, and that's both either home ownership or apartments. But if you think about it, say, well, my home went up in value, I'm going to sell it and take that money. Great. But then when you go, if you buy a house of equal value and utility and location going forward, it's going to cost you the same thing. So, um, you know, un unless you're planning to sell out and just rent, um, you're, uh, you know, you're that, that, that's part of, and as you know, as a financial advisor, when you look at someone's total wealth, you look at it without their permanent residence, uh, you know, in that portfolio, because you live in your house, but you live on your investments. So talking about income producing real estate, five major property types, office, industry, retail, apartments, and hotels, they're, you know, the economy is starting to come back. Four of those five property types are doing really well. Um, COVID just accelerated the, the concept of work from home. And I think we're in for at least a half a decade of figuring out what happens with uh, office space. You know, we'll talk about that, but yeah, yeah, the, that the, is... you know, the main driver of uh, real estate demand uh, is, is really employment growth because as people are employed, they need a place to work. They need a place to live, shop, eat, play, pray, everything else. Yeah. And uh, employment growth, uh, I believe, is going to be really strong going forward, uh, mainly because we've got 11 million unfilled jobs. You know, wage growth has been has been pretty strong uh, because I need somebody and I just, you know, keep upping my price till I finally get somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's kind of a unique situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, you hit on a main point that I like to share in concept with our clients and, you know, my colleagues as we plan, you know, the utility aspect of our home, you know, it's a roof over our head, it's our shelter. And, you know, a lot, oftentimes people will get that confused somewhat with an investment. Um, but when it comes into long-term planning, being able to keep that in perspective, um, you know, Karen Ellenbecker here, who I work closely with, always says you can't eat your house, right? But at the same time, you have to rely on it to provide you with the things needed. Um, you know, obviously downsizing is going to be something that's relevant for people at some point in their life. But, you know, given where the economy's been and certainly probably want you to weigh in on the amount of uh, cash, you know, M2 money supply that's been in our system over the past few years <laughs> and a little bit. Uh, probably accelerated just based on COVID. And that's really kind of driven a lot of it as well, I, I, I would imagine. 
Yes. Um, you mentioned employment growth is an important factor that drives a lot of these things. And, you know, we really have seen jobless claims and things kind of stay at a, a really manageable level for the U.S. economy. Um, is there anything there that you would find that might change that outside of what, you know, the Fed is, is looking at, at doing with interest rates right now? Honestly, no. We're at an extremely low rate of unemployment. And like I say, with all these job openings, I don't see how that goes. Normally, when we have a recession, GDP goes negative and employment growth goes negative. This would be the first time where I think we possibly get negative GDP growth, but still uh, positive uh, employment growth during that time. So negative GDP with positive employment, is that really a recession? And that would be left, out, I think, for debate out there, right? So interest rates, we've seen the Fed hike rates now, what, 10 times since March of last year. Right. That's had a very significant, profound effect on people's ability to, you know, um, either afford, uh, look at different projects and things of that nature. Uh, as In terms of leading indicators, is, is that anything that you're seeing right now that would be you know, major factor uh, as far as where we're headed from here? Um, well, when I analyze real estate, I start with demand. And again, employment growth drives demand growth for space. And then when you look at supply, these higher interest rates basically make building a new building uh, much more expensive. And therefore, the deals aren't penciling as much. So we're going to, if demand is growing and supply is being restrained, uh, just from higher interest rates, although the cost of building has gone up because of higher material and labor costs, that'll help keep the market in a uh, somewhat tighter balance. And obviously, we've seen even housing prices go up uh, because we are, you know, we've got short supply, but still demand out there. Yeah, for sure. And I, I know that's probably had a, a big change in terms of how banks are underwriting and, you know, feasibility the rate of how quickly units are, you know, are, are being sold and, and all the five different areas that you're, you're, that we're focused on in terms of real estate. Let's talk about your real estate market cycle monitor uh, that, you know, you've been publishing that now, I think back into the early nineties. Is that correct? That is correct. And that is a, a tool. I think that, that you and your students and, and many other you know, professionals in the business have probably been able to utilize to give some forecasting around how these different segments of the real estate market are performing. And you know, would you care to share with us a little bit about how you came up with that strategy and, and what it really is used for? So back in early in 1990, I'm, I actually got um, hired away from my professor job at Prudential real estate investors, who at that time was the largest investor in income producing real estate in the US, not only for the insurance company's investments, but also they advised the big pension funds and endowments out there in the world, the largest being CalPERS, California Public Employees Retirement System. And they said, we're in a recession here in 1990, uh, real estate's down. Can you figure out what happened, why it happened and model it and everything else? So. Um, there's really two parts to a real estate cycle. One is the physical cycle, which is demand and supply for space that drives occupancy levels and hence rent growth or the income side of real estate. And then the financial cycle of capital flows, people buying and selling real estate 
which drives the prices. So I separate those two. And my my report is about the physical side because uh, the financial side is pretty much of a guess as to what's going to happen. It's people's emotions as to whether now's a good time to buy or not. So, you know, I've, like I say, I've been doing it for now 30 years. It goes out to, I think, about 10,000, um, you know, people, banks use it um, when they're underwriting wow. loans, investors use it, and that kind of thing. And I cover the 54 largest cities in the country, uh, of which Milwaukee is one, mm -hmm. and kind of where they are by property type in their cycle. So we can talk about each individual property type here as we go along. That'd be fantastic. I do want to mention that we're meeting with Dr. Glenn Miller from the University of Denver. He is a real estate professor of construction management and real estate. He has a world-renowned uh, published research piece, Market Cycle Monitor. And uh, we're also talking about the state of the current real estate market uh, currently today. So with that, we're going to take a short break. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about residential and the other areas of real estate that you know are important for us to gain understanding on. Welcome back to Money Sense. We are joined today by Dr. Glenn Miller. Let's talk first about the state of the residential real estate market that, you know, many people have questions in terms of whether they should be thinking about buying their home, buying a home, upgrading or selling, possibly downsizing. Um, I, I just made an observation through the last three years of how quickly real estate has risen in, in price. And that's purely, you know, I imagine a demand driven thing. But it is also fascinating to think about how many people have gone into real estate transactions without having contingencies in a position to pay cash. Um, is that a trend that you've seen in the past? So um, when we talk about residential, it's a um, kind of a simple mathematical formula, at, which is um, the mortgage you can get for a property to buy. Um, is based on 30% of the income you make. So let's do a real simple calculation here. Let's assume you make $100,000 a year. 30% of $100,000 is $30,000 towards your mortgage payment. Um, Pre-COVID and actually into COVID, interest rates came down and actually hit a low in May after COVID you know, uh, came in to shut down the country in March. And we had you you could you could get a 30-year fixed mortgage for under three percent. So let's do the math. I got thirty thousand a year divided by 0 0.03 or three percent. I can afford a million dollar mortgage mm -hmm. with that. Okay. So let's go buy, right? And uh, we literally had bidding wars going on. You put a house on the market and you know, on a on a Friday afternoon, and you've got five offers on Saturday. Uh, and that went on for a while, because people were also saying, wow, um, I'm now not going into work. Uh, and I got to work from home. So I need more space. So the demand, you know, it got driven up very quickly. As uh, you know, the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, though, and now the 30 year fixed mortgage today, 
is going to go at 6%, take 30,000 divided by 0.06, you can only afford a $500,000 mortgage. So, right. but yet in many, many cities, we still have strong demand because the people that were trying to buy that couldn't are still out there trying to do so. A lot of people ended up because they weren't spending it, saving a lot more money during the COVID era. And um, as a matter of fact, the U.S. savings rate went from $1 trillion a year to $4 trillion a year. And so many people have more of a down payment and that kind of thing. And so that's still happening. And when my students say, well, shouldn't I wait till interest rates come down? And I, and I mm -hmm. tell them, but when they do, prices will just go up even more. Right. So the nice thing is if you buy a home today and you have a higher interest rate mortgage, when rates come down, you can refinance and lower your payment, you know, back to where it might have been pre-COVID. So, uh, and and as I said in the uh, first segment, you know, the National Association of Realtors does a study every year, and uh, they currently are saying that we are 6.5 million housing units short in the United States, and that's both home ownership and rental apartments. So there's um, because people have jobs and everything else, the demand is there and we have you know in the rental market for instance rents have gone up a bunch and so you might have two single people who decide to rent a two-bedroom instead of each renting a one-bedroom saving up some money before they can buy so don't assume that uh, we're going to see you know prices come down much uh during the great recession when we had all those um you know funky loans where you didn't have to qualify and everything else and people were buying stuff up you know we actually had prices come down about 11 percent, but today they're 50 percent higher than they were back then yeah that's a so, good point. you know uh, think think long term and a home is always going to be a reasonably good investment uh, yeah i agree with you on uh, the standpoint of when i first started in banking in the 90s you know mortgage rates were you know, six and a half, seven percent where they are, you know, almost at this point today. And it's really fascinating to think about at that time, people were saying that's a low rate, you know, consider yourself lucky because in the 70s, late, late 70s, mortgage interest rates were in the high teens, right? So everything's right. relative. Yeah. It's my, my first house that I bought um, in 1976. Um, interest rates were running right around uh, 10%. And my builder bought it down to, I think, seven and a half. So, uh, yes. And of course, you know, the 10 year treasury back in the 50s was 2%. It went to 15% in 1981. It hit its lowest ever in history, you know, uh, after COVID started at, at down at 0.6%. And today, it's running right about 4%, still way lower than the 70 year average of five and a half. Yeah, it's moved so quickly and such a short amount of time that um, it's it's really interesting to think about the concepts there and how the inverted, you know, the, the ability, the capacity and ability to, to purchase more and have to spend more to do it. So with that being the case, you know, you, you mentioned a couple points, you know, on that U.S. Treasury rate going up. You know, I guess that's the silver lining for a lot of folks that have been able to manage their debt and not have to necessarily worry about the mortgage uh, rate environment we're in today because, you know, we've got 
U.S. Treasuries risk-free, you know, north of five percent on the six month, and then we've got bank CDs, you know, paying in in the low fives right now as well. So you know, there's a lot of people out there that have changed their tune quite a bit with this rate environment shift. Do you have any thoughts on? you know, how long this interest rate hiking cycle may last, if there's a thought in terms of what the Fed has done up to this point to raise rates, if they'll continue or, you know, they may have to, to start looking at, at slowing things down. The, the, new, the new inflation number that just came out was lower, which is good. And the Fed is thinking about, are there other things that they need to be considering? Obviously, wage, they may uh, stop focusing so much on the CPI and focus more on wage growth to get that down. We'll see. Heard an interesting economist that is a retired Fed guy that said, you know, this 2% target maybe is wrong and maybe it should be 3%. Um, but who knows if if they'll come around to that. I'm guessing you know, what the Federal Reserve might do. Difficult. I'd say, I'd say we've got minimum six months, maybe a year. Where they'll keep going until they actually slow things down and if we do make gdp go negative the rest of this year that'll probably you know stop them absolutely so, so. yeah I, I, I that's you know kind of what we're what we're thinking too um you know and how long they hit the pause button when they finally do decide to to take that stance you know, no one really knows um, until we start to see. Um, a, a colleague of mine said they'll raise rates until they see something break, right? Right. That happened. We saw that with the regional banking sector uh, at the end of the first quarter with Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other regionals. Obviously, our team is paying close attention to that, but also keeping in context how important those institutions are uh, from the standpoint of, of being able to help drive um, economic growth outside of the big banks that, that we know are involved in, in uh, mortgage lending and other things of that nature, too. Sure. Um, it, you know, from the standpoint of underwriting, you know, not, not just at the retail, you know, residential level, but at the, the larger commercial, industrial level complex have you noticed any major shifts within the banking sector that that your students are are discovering or that you're seeing out there who who is lending and what they're lending on obviously is going through some shifts a lot a, a lot of uh, commercial real estate loans as as opposed to being held by banks has now been put out into what's called cmbs or commercial mortgage-backed securities you know, that's kind of a different world, if you will. So the bank, once it, it makes a loan and then it sells it into the bond market, is it's no longer the bank's problem, Sure, you will. So that's, uh, that's an interesting way to go. They are being told that, you know, real estate's a more risky asset. Therefore, you have to have more reserves to do a real estate loan than other things. Um, so that has uh, slowed, you know, the banks making the loans but we're seeing other, you know, private capital sources and pension plans and things like that making money available. You know, with that, you know, I, I think this is probably a good point to take a break. Uh, but for our listeners, I'd like to mention that we're talking to Dr. Glenn Miller, professor of real estate and construction management with the University of Denver, having a great conversation here about where things are at and where they may be headed for real estate in the future. So. 
We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group. Today, we have a special guest joining us, Dr. Glenn Miller. Can, can you share how the environment we're in today may be different than how it was during the Great Recession in, in the 08-09 phase? Sure. So an artificial shutdown of our economy where everybody had to stay home was extremely unique. You know, although we do have a pandemic every 100 years, we had the Spanish flu back in uh, 1919 that uh, killed a lot of people and shut a lot of things down. So, um, you know, we've been through it before, if you will. Interestingly enough, the government decided on what was essential and what wasn't. And so, you know, let's take uh, retail, for instance. If you were deemed essential and you were a fast food restaurant or a grocery store or a... Um, building materials, Home Depot, et cetera. You got to stay open and your sales went through the roof uh, as well as Walmart for that matter because they do grocery. Um, and so anytime sales go up, you want to expand. Well, retail, building a new retail space has been uh, pretty restricted for almost a decade because of the Amazon effect. Mm. Today, retail occupancies are really, really high. Regional malls are going through a reconfiguration, rethought process, uh, because some of the anchor tenants are having problems, uh, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, going to the Mayfair Mall, um, you know, the major anchor tenants uh, are now gone and it's a, and it's a different place. Uh, so retail is actually uh, doing well. Industrial space obviously demands off the charts. Uh, everybody need, everybody wants to buy online and have stuff show up the next day. And we are, industrial rents have gone up. Industrial has literally been the best property type from a return basis over the last uh, decade, which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, next in line, I would put um, apartments. Um, again, people need a place to live. We're short on housing units. Um, rents got pushed up a lot, but that will, that will sort itself out, if you will, and apartments you know, we've got a good run. We need, we, it's five to 10 years to actually build the supply that we need of housing, whether ownership or rental. Uh, so, um, you know, long-term apartments, again, will do very well. Uh, next in line is um, hotels. Obviously, we, we, went to, we, we went from like an average 70% occupancy to like 25% during COVID. And then it has bounced back strongly because everybody has all this money from not doing anything during COVID. Right. And so traveling has gone through the roof, as I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so resort hotels, um, highway hotels, demands off the chart, they're doing really well. Raised rates, as you will probably see. Um, the two segments that were hurting were convention hotels and business hotels. Convention business, everybody wants to see each other and get back together. That has come back now strongly here this year. But business hotels, since people may not be working downtown, right. still having, having a problem. So again, sort of a COVID have and a COVID have not. And then finally, office space. Obviously, the big jump, biggest jump ball in real estate today where people go, gee, I can work from home. That's much better than commuting in and all that kind of stuff. For some people, other people are like, hey, I want to be in 
at the office, you know, because I'm young, I, I like the socialization, but it'd be really nice if I could work at home on Monday and Friday and only be in the office three days a week. So all of a sudden, how much space do we need if people aren't working in the office every day? Exactly. So mm -hmm. I think we have a good five year period to sort out what's going to happen with the office. Everybody says, oh, everybody wants to live downtown. Let's convert all the downtown office to apartments. But you have to have an outside window in an apartment. It's required yeah. by law. Precisely. So yeah. Some buildings work and other buildings don't. So, and the cost of that conversion is not cheap. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Just recently read that uh, somebody's going to try and make uh, vertical farming out of an old office building. You hit on a couple points that, you know, just speaking from my experience with some of the clients that we work with, um, we've been noticing that a lot of larger employers are saying, hey, look, we've given you, you know, some flexibility from the standpoint of being able to work from home. Um, some people, you know, obviously had experience with doing that prior to COVID, um, but way more now, obviously. It seems that these these employers, these large companies are giving people, you know, a lot of time. They're, they're saying, hey, look, you know, we, we don't need you back in the office next week, but maybe sometime, you know, at the beginning of next year, you know, we want you in three days a week. Flex schedules are still something that that they're they're offering, but I think a, a lot of that shift is is something that we're starting to see. So you're right. That is the the million billion dollar question out there in terms of where office is headed. Right. One thing I've noticed too, um, just some of the larger retail centers, right? Because you, you mentioned the Amazon effect. Everybody wants to order it, you know, today, have it today, have it tomorrow. Um, and track it on its way there, which is which is also a very fascinating uh, concept about about what uh, retail ch changes have occurred. But the um, the big malls that we're even in the Milwaukee metropolitan area, we're starting to see some residential uh, changeover into you know apartments and things of that nature right here in our market, which is right. really interesting. And and that's really good for retail too, because all of a sudden I've got an audience who's living there that's going to use the retailers that are there. They're going to go, they're going to go to those restaurants and those stores, you know, it becomes like its own little mini city or suburb. So yeah, absolutely. I, think, I think that's, that's one of the things happening. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, my, uh, my friend, the professor at Harvard, his son uh, lives in Toronto and works for a big developer. They took their mall. And when Sears left, they ended up leasing that space to a Porsche dealer. So now you can, you know, instead of driving to the dealership and then having to get a ride home while they're working on your car, they go up, oh, go shopping and, uh, you know, and, and have lunch, et cetera. And, and, you know, walk back over and it'll be ready for you later. Very interesting. Uh, today we're joined by Dr. Glenn Miller, professor of real estate and construction management with um, university of Denver. And we're talking about the dynamics that we're seeing currently and in the past with the real estate market, uh, not only somewhat locally here, but also more on a, a US scale. Um, Glenn, one of the things that I saw recently in one of my readings was um, a map or a chart that showed the number of people that are migrating throughout the country over the past couple of years. Um, it's, it's a scatter plot chart that says, hey, uh, for each, I don't know, blue dot, 100 people, have moved to this space, 
for the other color, red dot, or whatever it is, um, these are people that left the area. And it was really interesting to look at some of the U.S. geographic areas, particularly down in the southern region, Florida, uh, the coasts, you know, both east and west, major metropolitan cities, some migration, some uh, some people moving to those areas. So do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, you know, cost of living is something to consider in everything that we do. And actually, the highest cost of living city in the country is San Francisco. And, you know, the U.S. average, we set it at 100, right? San Francisco's number is 179. It costs 79% more to live in San Francisco versus New York City is only 159. And uh, I actually just did a, something locally here in Minnesota looking at it. Uh, I think Minneapolis is about 127, so 27% higher than the U.S. average. But every major city in Wisconsin, I think Milwaukee is the most expensive. You're just slightly over like 101 or 102. Mm -hmm. But all the other major cities are below 100%. So, you know, a less expensive place to live. Um, and people are, you know, considering that, hey, if I move to, you know, I'm, I grew up in Oshkosh. If I move to Oshkosh, I can actually afford to buy a house mm -hmm. versus not. Uh, you know, the hottest cities have been like Austin, Texas and Denver, Colorado and, you know, some of the other Sunbelt cities, right? But uh, the the tech boom um you know has has slowed some now and so uh reonshoring some manufacturing and other things like that uh potentially spreads that out to other cities um you know a lot of people would say well you know Milwaukee's weather in the winter isn't so nice so why would anyone want to be there but sure I don't think Pittsburgh's any different Pittsburgh has done done well you know in this uh in this latest thing very interesting. So with that, uh, Glenn, we're going to take a, a quick break. And when we return uh, to our final segment, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the efficiency of real estate, uh, ways to think about getting involved in if you wanted to have direct ownership or passive ownership interest in real estate, uh, just some ideas there. So we'll be back right after this break. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group. Today we have Dr. Glenn Miller, Professor of Real Estate with the University of Denver. We've been having a great conversation about many different aspects of real estate. Uh, before our break, we talked about, you know, the efficiencies that exist within the real estate market from the standpoint of looking at opportunities to either own real estate directly, consider what those possibilities are, but also think about how to own it indirectly. So Glenn, with that, if any of our listeners out there had an interest in wanting to own real estate, do you have any ideas on ways that they might consider doing something like that? You know, oh, uh, everybody thinks, oh, you know, I can buy, uh, you know, I, I can buy a house and rent it out and make some money, uh, which is true. Um, but in, in essence, when you buy a piece of real estate, you just bought a business. You have to operate it. You have to finance it. You have a tenant. You got a, a client that you got to keep happy, and you got to take care of the uh, 
running toilet or the broken water heater or uh, or trash or whatever the case may be. So um, it is, you know, it's a it's a business. You know, real estate is a true and separate profession. Um, almost every university in the country now has at least a couple of real estate classes, if not a not a real estate program. And the oldest real estate program at a, at a university in this country is actually the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The second mm -hmm. oldest happens to be University of Denver, where I am. And so we train professionals to go and uh, and and do that stuff. You know, it, yeah, you could buy a duplex or a fourplex or a big or apartment building if you've got, got that kind of money. But when you do that, you're taking a concentration risk. You, you know, you live and work in Milwaukee. And if Milwaukee's doing well, great. But if Milwaukee's not doing well, then your investment in your apartment building isn't going to do as well because there's not going to be as much demand. So uh, over time, what we've done is created um, lots of different investment venues out there. Mm -hmm. One of them is uh, publicly traded REITs or real estate investment trusts. You can go to the stock market and say, hey, uh, they're, and they're mostly segmented by property type. So, hey, I'd like to buy an apartment REIT or two apartment REITs or, um, you know, a, 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 an industrial REIT or whatever. You're buying into a big company, typically in the billions of dollars. Uh, you're buying their, you know, their shares of stock uh, and they, they hire a lot, a lot of my students et cetera, mm -hmm. to, sure. yeah. to operate it. And they have people that specialize in acquiring properties, people that specialize in managing the properties, people that specialize in uh, financing the properties and people that specialize in disposing of the properties. So you can do that. The one problem or issue with the public stock market is it's the volatility of the prices. You know, over a very long period of time, those prices have, you know, you know have moved up and the um, the uh, publicly traded REITs, which have been around since 1960, mm -hmm. but typically we we look at data because uh, they went through a transition in the early 70s. But since uh, I, we typically, I'm just finishing a study, we look at data from 1978 going forward. So that's 45 years. That's um, you know six economic cycles. Um, five real estate cycles, et cetera, you know, the total return in, in, on those has been a, around 12%, which is actually better than the stock market. So mm -hmm. if you're willing to swallow that volatility and, you know, REITs were down 30% last year, they're already up 15% this year. Um, so you got to take the ups and downs of that. If you want to go into and not be in the publicly traded market, we now have they're called non-traded REITs that they, they, uh, you, you buy shares just like you would a publicly traded REIT, but it's not traded on the stock market. And the company does a private market valuation or appraisal of those properties every month and says, you know, you bought in at 10 bucks a share and values have gone up. So it's now worth 10, 50 or $11 a share. And they will buy those shares back from you at that price right or and sell new shares at that price so the the ability to buy into non-traded funds is what a lot of financial advisors believe is much more close to owning a property but if you wanted to own a property sure. pay somebody to help you finance it pay somebody to help you um acquire it pay somebody to help you manage it and then pay someone 
to help you dispose of it. Um, you're doing that in a fund, but you're also getting the diversification of investing, these funds invest in many different cities mm-hmm. around the country, right? And that and that diversification means that if, if Milwaukee's not doing well, all the investments that it has in other cities potentially are. Right, as, as we mentioned, other, you know, other significant areas in the country, they diversify away some of that risk. That's, uh, that's important. Um, and that's it, right? Hitting the nail on the head. Risks uh, that are involved with either owning a direct investment into a property where somebody might give you a call on a Sunday afternoon telling you that you, you know, there's an issue versus, you know what, I really don't have to worry about that. I have a means to go ahead and get the exposure I'm looking for in my portfolio without necessarily having to go go through that. Glenn, do you want to just touch on the Family Office Real Estate Institute that you, um, I understand you have founded and work with uh, a number of different families? So um, there are lots of wealthy families out there, and um, many of them invest... uh, some of them made their money in real estate, but a lot of them made it in something else. And, you know, the last two decades, it's been tech and things like that. But then when they go to take their wealth and invest it, they want to put it in real estate. So the Family Office Real Estate Institute, um, you know, helps uh, wealthy families. And what they do is they create a family office where they actually hire people to help manage their money and that kind of thing. Um, we we do education and and conferences etc for them to kind of talk about uh you know real estate and how it fits into their portfolio and what we do and just to give you kind of an idea mm-hmm. you know you're you you become wealthy when you've got over a million dollars in investments you become ultra wealthy when you're probably 20 million dollars we define family offices as having $250 million mm-hmm. or more. I so see. it's it's kind of the stratosphere kind of thing. And to give you a fun example, Bill Gates, his family office, um, and it doesn't have his name on it, so you don't know it's him, mm-hmm. um, is the largest owner of farmland in the United States. No kidding. Yeah. So um, he believes that... Uh, Keeping, you know, farmland, uh, you know, U.S. owned is important and uh, food production is important for the country and stuff like that. Uh, China has been buying up land in uh, South America because they have ruined so much of their land. that They can't produce crops on. They're cutting down rainforest and putting, um, you know, and and putting in uh, uh, crops to be able to uh, feed their population. Fascinating. Yeah, I was I was glad you brought that up because I was curious about the that type of uh, sector of the real estate market. I, I'm hopeful that you can also share for our listeners how they might find more information about your research, um, or if they're interested in pursuing you know some of your programs uh, from the standpoint of an education. You'd love to love to hear about that. Sure. You know, well, University of Denver um, is a place where we get a lot of kids from the Midwest, uh, including me. I got my undergraduate degree there. And we have both an undergraduate degree in real estate and or construction management, uh, a uh, master's degree in real estate and or construction management. And so we get a lot of people who are looking to change a career 
or move up in our company and, and come and get that from us. And then most recently, if you just have always wanted people to call you a doctor, um, we started an executive PhD program so that you could actually online uh, take the courses and then do a dissertation and get your PhD in real estate with us. Family Office Real Estate Institute puts on kind of an introductory um, course on um, real estate investing uh, for families that aren't involved, and we're working on more advanced courses uh, going going along from there. But um, you know, and since you're here in Wisconsin, obviously, uh, I know the professor that's there at uh, University of Wisconsin Milwaukee and at Marquette University. So all. Pretty much every university now has at least a couple of classes in real estate that you could uh, get into. If you're interested in getting my uh, report, you can go online. It's posted at uh, it's uh, Denver University's website, du.edu slash Burns School. It's the Franklin Burns School of Real Estate. Um, and or you can just call Jamie or, you know, the Ellen Becker. Group That's right. They get it and you can... Uh, so you can call them and ask them for uh, to to uh, get uh, copies of uh, my market cycle reports. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, today we've been with Dr. Glenn Miller, uh, professor of real estate construction management at University of Denver, Colorado. Um, share a couple of final thoughts here. You know, Money Sense airs on Saturdays from two to three p.m. and Sundays from noon to one. Um, if you like today's show and want to learn more, please visit ellenbecker.com or call us at 262-691-3200. As always, we hope that we've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, we advise. Before we invest, we always listen. So thank you for joining us today, uh, Dr. Miller, and uh, we wish you a great uh, summer break. <laughs>